1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast. Stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Antoinette Latouf, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation now for some time. The minute I saw your book, I thought, I need her. Let's find her. (laughs) So we found you. Antoinette is an award-winning journalist media personality, diversity advocate, and author. She is the co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, a not-for-profit organisation that works to increase cultural and linguistic diversity in the Australian media landscape. In 2019, Antoinette was named one of the AFR's 100 Women of Influence, and in 21 was awarded a Woman's Agenda Leadership Award. She co-hosts The Briefing, Australia's fastest-growing daily news podcast, and has appeared on Q&A in Insight, The Project, and Studio 10. Now, she's here today. She's written a book. It's called How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. And as you can imagine, my dear listeners and my loyal listeners, you know that I am going to love this conversation. Okay. (laughs) Let's go. I mean, it is something I talk about so much on this podcast is diversity, Antoinette. How important is it?
2: Uh, It is so important, but I think you and I would both agree we would love to have to stop talking about it. We would love to have to stop advocating and being, and I quote, uh, you know, so-called troublemakers, simply because we're calling for better representation and for our democracy to actually serve its purpose and serve all Australians.
0: You know, I'm interested in that in terms of um, being seen as a troublemaker. I think readers generally show a lot of empathy. And so in terms of the better reading community, they get me, they get where I'm coming Mm. from. But sometimes I could be at a family function or any function and people say something and of course I don't. You know, I never stand for it. I'm not rude about it, but I just don't accept it. But my I've got four sisters, right? And oh so do I. Oh, you I do. Have four, I we have, four have so much in common. Yeah. Anyway, um, my sisters say to me, All right, Cheryl, Cheryl, don't say anything today. Don't say anything today. <laughs> do you get that? I do. And
2: I even have my my nephews now. I have um teenage nephews, and one of my sisters has four boys, and they're like, Oh, Auntie Antoinette is such a feminist. Oh, my God, Auntie Antoinette is so embarrassing on social media. Have you seen what she put on Instagram? So, yeah, I do sometimes get that. But I'm also getting better at choosing my battles. And that's like, that's something that I talk about in my book. Like There are some people that are, are so far in opposition to any any progress or really have their minds closed that I've learned that you're never going to influence them.
0: And so for some people, it's better you're better off not even trying. You know, I, that happened to me a couple of Christmases ago. I was sitting next to this woman, right? And she was beautiful, gorgeous, white, blonde hair, very attractive lady. And she was talking about reading because, you know, she we talked about mm. what we do and I said I was in the book industry. And she said, oh, do you know, I read the Michelle Obama book. And I said, oh, God, so did I. Mm. I, I read so it did in, I. Yeah, I read it in hard copy and then I listed, listened to it in audio. I was so I enjoyed it so much. She said, but, you know, my only problem with that Book is she wasn't grateful enough. Oh, wow. Mm. And I said, Grateful about what? And she said, Well, you know, you know, about a person like her being in the White House. And oh. you know what? I thought I can't win this battle. So I just put my knife and fork down, picked up my plate, and said, I'm sorry, I can't sit here anymore. And I moved.
2: Oh, wow. That would, that would take a lot of restraint because I would mm. want to like flip the
0: table over mm. <laughs> and just feel, and mm. that, that'd really infuriate me. Mm. But um, it happens all the time, mm. all the time. Hey, now listen, I want to know your growing up story, how you came to actually be the person you are today. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, let me try and give
2: you an abridged version. So yeah. I am one of seven children. <laughs> Um, my parents came from Lebanon as refugees, Civil War refugees, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a, a fairly common story in my community. They came with no no money, um, no language skills. Very, they were very poorly educated. They were both pulled out of school before they turned 10. And they grew up in a really uh, remote rural area. And actually, my mum thought she was um, going to America. She didn't even know Australia existed. And then she comes here and starts starts her life, meets my dad. We grew up in Western Sydney um, in an area where there are a lot of Arabic-speaking communities. We grew up really quite poor. Um, so my world was, I mean, I had a, a lovely childhood, but it was one of family and food. And uh, But I never had any exposure to anybody who was a profession. Um, You know, marriage and lots of babies was something that was expected of all, you know, good Lebanese girls. And so when I demonstrated that I really loved school and that I was, you know, good at it, you know, my father would say things to me like, oh, you know, nobody, be careful. Nobody wants to marry somebody who's too smart or has too many opinions um, and that that I should consider dropping out of school and um, a career in hairdressing. And so education was discouraged by my father because he was a product of what he knew and the society he grew up in. But my mother had always loved to learn and was a very, and is a very smart woman. She would, would have loved to have become a school principal. That was her dream, but she wasn't allowed to work. She was pulled out of school and asked to work the land and help the family. And that was something she really regretted. And that was something I witnessed with a lot of my aunties because of their lack of education and their lack of skills and opportunities They ended up in some pretty horrible situations and pretty horrible relationships. They were economic prisoners and didn't have a way out. They would often say to me, well, how can I leave? Where where can I go? I can't speak English. I have no skills. And so that really put a fire in my belly to ensure that I had a pathway and that I would, um, you know, whatever I was told about, you know, being a woman or being a Lebanese woman or being a woman from a, you know, a terrible public school in the Western suburbs that.
0: I was determined to try and break that cycle where Uh, women stayed in awful, awful violent relationships. Do you know, when I think about our parents, and my parents would be a lot older than yours, but the challenges they had, I mean, my parents came out a few, you know, quite a few years before your parents with no language whatsoever and extreme poverty, um, um, again, but trying to make a life. You know, my mother, and I've talked about this recently because she passed away recently, uh, you know, she had a corner shop and at the same time she sewed glow mesh purses and she knitted yeah. cardigans. But they not only had the pressures of the community in in Australia and Sydney in our case, but they also had the the pressure of living in a white Australia at the same time. And she had so many, my parents had so many challenges. Um. Um, but when I think about, I mean, you know, I, I've talked about this before, Antoinette, on this podcast, we, for, I think it was a year or more, we lived in a one room house and I'm not saying one bedroom, one room, Mm. one bathroom. Right. And, but they were the happiest days of my life. Mm. And when I look about, look back at my childhood and I do as an adult recognize like you do, how hard they worked. I I mean, I was incredibly happy and I still am, you know, they, Mm. they did that for us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a similar story here. At one point, we were three families living in one house
0: um, to pay the
2: rent all with children. And we, and we had seven, my family had seven children. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was real, real poverty and real struggle, but we were also nourished and loved and always around aunties and family. So there was, in that, that's, you can't put a a price on that. You can't, um, it's really hard to quantify. So I've got so, I have so many wonderful memories of my childhood, but I was acutely aware of the disadvantage and I was acutely aware of the impediments, extra impediments I faced, A, for just for being a female. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in my community, and also having no gateway or access to uh, to
0: knowledge and power. Um, well, and, and no role models? None. No, none. No. no. So tell me so then you went to high school? Yes. Yeah, so your then path? I would- so I went to high school. I
2: went to a local high school, which was a pretty rough high school. Well, actually, very rough high school because you know it went on to graduate. Um, you know, a lot of the people that were my peers were in the years above me and now notorious, uh, you know, outlaw motorcycle gang leaders. Have um, been, good, you know,
0: good <laughs> role modeling there. Good role modeling. <laughs>
2: um, there was, you know, a lot of teen pregnancies and drugs and alcohol, and you know, it was it was. Um, It was a real melting pot of cultures and people of various different backgrounds, but it meant I very much didn't have a sheltered upbringing Mm -hmm. and I saw and felt and experienced a lot of things growing up. I got to Year 10 and realised, I don't think if I want to do what I want to do, the pathway isn't, it's not going to be possible here. So I remember having a discussion with my careers advisor in Year 10 saying, I want to go to the best journalism school in the country, I want to be a journalist, I want to tell stories, and then he was like, or um, well maybe, how about we look at the local TAFE? Mm-hmm. And if you do okay there after a year or two, I know they have a good relationship with the local university, which was not the university I was aiming to go to. So, how about we try there? And so, I remember saying at that time, you know, probably similar to you, I was never one to hold back and I always thought that I had to fight for everything. And so, I remember saying to him, well, no. And I think you should consider a career change. Mm. Um, And so then I looked around for for different schools and found the selective school system. Without telling my parents, I applied. I just had brought some forms home to mum and said, can you sign here? And they relied on their kids to navigate forms and bureaucracy and english and things like that so yeah mum was just like oh okay well just sign here and then when i got accepted i sat my parents down and said i'm going to another school this is why and my dad was like not very pleased but my mum supported me also because i was the fifth child i think they were just like oh we're too tired we're too Mm -hmm. we're so busy we're (laughs) we're just gonna let this one do what she wants um and so then i went to a different school um, and i got the grades the grades i needed and i got into the university course that I had set out to it, at UTS. Yeah. So that, yeah. And then what happened? Oh, well, then my only interaction with a person and, and now at this point who was a professional, had mentioned earlier that we were three families living in one house. So he knew me before I was born. Um, He was actually um, uh, from a Muslim Lebanese family and we're from a Catholic Lebanese family. And anybody who knows anything about the civil war knows that religious sectarian divides is what fueled a lot of the civil war. And so the fact that our families lived together once they fled the war, it was quite remarkable. So at that point, when I get to university, he's now a lawyer. So that's my one professional I know. Mm. Um, he, he introduced me to somebody at Sydney Morning Herald. They re- I was still at university. At the time, they used to run Heckler, which was kind of a reader's contribution. And um, I wrote a piece, interestingly enough, about multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was invited then to be on SBS Insight as a panellist. Probably I was probably 20 years old. Yeah, wow. And I remember having a pretty fiery um, on-air exchange with a a professor who had told me a woman who t- turned from ANU who t- turned around and whispered to me when the cameras weren't on us that i knew nothing about australian history and multiculturalism and so then I, that got me quite fired up and then i got a job at SBS as a result of as as a result of that exchange mm. that 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 started my my um my career in 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 the media
0: yeah um, it's interesting how people think they know more about you than you know about yourself outrageous right it, right and i was like well, you have we're, we're yeah. all brought
2: on because we have different perspectives yeah you that's know, the whole point of the program
0: exactly yeah hey speaking of television i don't watch a lot of free-to-air television but mm-hmm. a couple of months ago i was with my mum, and uh, she we were watching tv And the news came on, and I'm sure I can say this, it was Channel 9 News, right? And it was Uh a Friday or Saturday night. And I hadn't watched free-to-air news in years probably. And every single person on that show had blonde hair. Yeah. And I said... I, on that new segment, even when we were crossing to somebody in Newcastle or someone in whatever, yep. that journalist as well, that presenter also had blonde hair. Uh-huh. And I sent a text to a friend of mine who I think is really open-minded. And I said, I think Channel 9 didn't get the diversity meme up. Mm-hmm. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said this, he said, you know, I'm watching it and I didn't even notice. Mm-hmm. Now, what do we call that? Antoinette, what do we call that? Yeah.
2: Well, I just think we're conditioned to mm-hmm. believe that a certain type of person has yeah. a right to have a voice and to have authority and to have smarts. And whether we realise it or not, it is informing you know, informing how we view Australians and who we view to be illegitimate and a good Australian. And so that's mm-hmm. exactly, and I guess that seg- it's a lovely little segue to um 10 years into my career, I'm still facing this this dilemma where it still looks like it's a sea of white people um, mm. in our media and not much has changed and I get to a point in my career where I think, do I really want to mm. be part of this anymore? Mm. Like it's kind of part of the problem.
0: just want to say that my friend not even noticing it, I thought, you know, and he's, you know, completely uh, in tune and, you know, he's a great reader and and he should know better, but, and he does know better. But the thing is, I, I, what I felt at that moment is if you offered the masses diversity, they would accept it as well. It's just that that's what's being put to us. Or do you think it's more insidious than that? Oh, look, I think
2: it's probably, it's a, it's a few things. It would be um, that people. So the the employers have told long told me, oh, the people don't apply. We hire the best person for the job. We know mm. that's bull crap. Well, 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 firstly, they may not be applying, and that's probably because your program looks like an advertisement for the yeah. White Australia policy, the resurrection mm-hmm. of the White Australia policy. So, exactly. why would they? Yeah. Why would they apply? Yeah. Secondly, you have to work your way up in an organisation, you not just put on air straight away. That's it is right. hard to go into an environment like that. And I remember it because when I started my career at, at, at Network Ten, and I had previously previously been at SBS and ABC, I was acutely aware of always being the only non-white person in the room. That is difficult. You you come up against extra challenges. You have to be extra resilient. You have to be an even better better model minority, which we know there's no such thing as a model minority. It's just a way to pit us up against one another. And it's not for everyone. It is tiring. It is hard. There are routine microaggressions. You're constantly having to question um, or um, help other people. For example, there was a story being done about refugees and how many refugees were in, south, in this southwestern Sydney LGA and how that was leading to white flight through. And that, that meant, you know, white people didn't want to live in the neighbourhood. And so this story uh, I was helping a colleague with and I said, okay, so we've got the local mayor, there's some, you know, before in question time, we've got this person, we've got a white family. I said, like, oh, you have no refugees in a story about, oh my God, we're being swamped by refugees. The <laughs> fact that people cannot even see that without it being raised, like raised by somebody else. Mm. and They're like, oh, oh, but we just, we don't know who to call. I'm like, how about you stroll down the street? Because apparently they're being swamped by refugees, so they should be everywhere. And so it's that kind, it's tiring. Mm. It's tiring. It's tiring work. So yes, part of the, issue, and then so people don't necessarily want to have to carry that burden because you still have to do your
0: day job And you still have to function as a normal person. It's hard.
2: It's hard. And so, those, and sometimes people have tried and entered and then they don't last and they leave because it's not a culturally safe space.
0: Mm.
2: Um, But there are also zero efforts being. there is, you know, some outlets have, have invested not very much um, at all in trying to diversify. And it's not just for the visuals and for it to look pretty and like, a, you know, all the colours of the country. It's, it actually has real impact on the stories that are chosen, how they're told, how audiences engage, like connecting with diverse audiences. There are a lot of us. Um, It's also about serving audiences when we know free-to-air television, as you mentioned, you don't even watch it, is in a bit of crisis because a lot of people have the choice to go and look elsewhere. Mm,
0: I don't want my media to be diluted. Hey, talk to me about identity in terms of people often ask me this question and I do talk about it a lot on the podcast. You know, I mean, I was born in, in Sydney, Australia, but I identify very much as being Lebanese, very, very much. And I wonder... Some of my friends will say to me, oh, gosh, that's ridiculous that you think that you're Lebanese. And others will say, oh, yes, this is our Leb friend and, 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 you know, that kind Mm. of thing. Mm. And I wonder for you, because you're a lot younger than me, how do you identify? It's interesting because it's changed growing up. So
2: in my late teens, I was obviously always very Lebanese looking. And I grew up in an area with a lot of Lebanese people with a very large Lebanese community and large Lebanese family. So there was no hiding or escaping it. Mm. It was it difficult to, you know, high school is difficult generally navigating Mm. identity no matter who you are, where you hail from. But it was in my later teens, that's when September 11 happened. And then um, and as I went to university, the Cronulla riots, uh, those um, awful, awful, notorious Scarf brothers um, and the gang rapes. And, and there was a lot of moral panic about the Lebanese community, about Arabs. At that time, it was so difficult. And they are formative years as you transition from a teenager into into adulthood and here I am trying to get into an industry that's openly hostile to my community. It was really difficult to openly identify and be proud of who I was. I always felt that I had to be exceptional or position myself as the exception. Um, you know, no, I don't support drug dealers. And, you know, no, I don't know, you know, yes, I do Mm. condemn gang rapes. Um, no, I'm not a terrorist, you know, those sorts of things. So it was really difficult. But as I, um, as I've gotten older, I'm so much more proud of and have reconnected with who I am and my community and how, you know, my parents journey and my cultural group have, have made me who I am. And I lean into that because it actually makes me, uh, you know, a better, a better person, I believe more enriched person, but also a better journalist. Because I I have a different lived experience, I have different community connections, I have a different perspective. So yeah, as we know, identity can you know is fluid and it's 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 not fixed, but it's something that was really really challenging um, in my in my young adult years, and something I now see African Australians grapple with because they're now the subject of much of that moral panic in a similar kind of divisive narrative led by both. F-
0: law enforcement and the media. It's really, that is very fluid because if you look at, and insidious, I think, because you, if you look at, say, um, American films, for instance, you know, for the longest time, when I was growing up, the bad guys were usually the Russians, right? Mm-hmm. It was always, it was that. And then it became Arabs. Yeah, and- absolutely. Muslims mainly, you know, yes. or not even differentiating between, you know, Christian and Muslims, that we're all bad guys. And you just think that is just slowly creeping in to our society and people just accepting it. I mean, I think if it's even changing now, like you were saying, it's even that wave is even going. The Arabs are going and, you know, we've seen... Mm. You know, and it comes through in almost everything we read, almost everything we watch. And that's why people get frightened. Absolutely. We have such an important we have we play the media or storytellers
2: play such an important role, not only in entertaining and informing, but really in social cohesion. And so You know, when people look at the advocacy work I do with the anti-racism space, there's so, I mean, you know, racism is structural, it's so big, there are so many different ways it manifests, but my focus has been the media because I yeah. think the media plays an instrumental role Huge. in how in in the moral panics on you know who's the bad guy, and I just saw it happening to my own community, and I got a an insider's view of, of it. But also I felt the repercussions, and I witnessed how how that was felt amongst especially men who with obvious Middle Eastern appearance, like my husband and my brothers. Um, and I saw well, I saw the real world impacts. This is no longer just something that you know white inner city um, affluent folks who went to sandstone universities kind of do when they file it at the end of the day and then they go home to their beachside homes it's like well no it's the story doesn't stop when you file it the 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 flow on effects continue for years and the damages can often be irreversible and so that's you know kind of my niche in in how I try and and tackle structural racism Mm.
0: so a lot of people ask me and I'm sure you get asked the same question what is it that people can do what is it actively that people can do? And I guess that's what your book is about. Yeah, that's exactly what my book's about because mm. many people, especially after Black Lives Matter,
2: when even though Indigenous deaths in custody and the mm. ongoing injustices faced by our black community yeah, has, has never gone away, in many ways it's gotten worse, but it never got the airtime and never got the sympathy, never got the care factor it deserved until... George Floyd's unfortunate death. Um, so since then, I think people there has people are more re-energised. We've started to notice our own problems, but then they're overwhelmed, like with mm. climate change. What do I do? It's mm. so big. I'm just how one do person. I make a difference? How, how do I make, I make a difference? difference? And that's essentially what my book is about. It's for anybody. So you could be, mm. you know, a white teenager who you know has a big heart and wants to do something. Right to an employer who wants some tips on diversity and inclusion and how that can really, you know. Treat transform a workplace. So I I guess, I mean, it's kind of hard to summarize my whole book, but I do break it up into really practical, you know, basing it on evidence of what works with influence. How do you influence people? So the social psychology of influence and changing people's mind, because often people think, oh, well, if I just have lots of facts and just tell them again and again, it's going to work. Well, it's not because we, we know, for example, that Indigenous women are the most over-incarcerated population, prison population in the country, and it continues to grow. We know there are so many things we know on in on paper and in facts, but it's not translating. So one, a couple of steps I advise people is to one is to really, firstly, really understand your intention. What is it? Why are you doing this? Are you doing it for, you know, performative reasons to seem cool online? Are you doing it? It's okay if you're doing it for the business bottom line because we know diversity, diverse workplaces, for example, are more innovative and profitable. If that's your intention, just own it. Is your, you know, is your intention to create a better world for your children or to help you know, your child's school community? Just to be really honest about your intention. And the second thing before you even start to do anything is to find your niche because it can be, feel really overwhelming and it's incredibly tiring. So what is it specifically that you want to do? You don't have to sing, single-handedly, you know, um, end the bridge the health outcomes for Indigenous Australians compared to other Australians, um, nor do you have to single-handedly put, it, put an end to all Islamophobic attacks. If you find one thing that you want to focus on, for you and I, perhaps it would be it's the work we do in, in publishing and in media, that's mm-hmm. what I do. I don't I don't I don't profess to be doing stuff in sport or 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 something else or the fact that cervical cancer is almost, you know, almost cervical cancer has almost been stamped out of the Australian community, except amongst indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important to go, okay, what could I do based on my skill sets and my passion and my connections mm-hmm. that I can really focus on? Otherwise, once you lose your focus, you spread thin, you're not effective, and then you go, oh, stuff it. I tried that, it was too hard. I'm going
0: back to watching Netflix. <laughs> do you know what I think it is too as well, following on from your suggestions, is for, f- particularly at Better Reading, just talking about it all the time. I just don't stop talking about it. And sometimes I think people might think I'm a broken record, but I don't care because there are always new listeners. There are always new yeah. readers, you know. Um, and also I, I do think it gives a depth to story that is way more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about it all the time, but I would suggest
2: also that, that my next step, um, other than your intention, fudge your niche is understand your audience mm-hmm. and understand that as uh, you know, as we've discussed, some people aren't worth talking to. Oh, some people are so yeah. far gone that it's actually not mm-hmm. worth the, the the trauma that it mm-hmm. brings every time you have to re bring it up. They so mm-hmm. have to go through it again, and so. In in sort of in change, like change makers often scale people from one to five. With one being your strong agree, they're your, your big time allies. They're people who you don't have to convince, and they're your champions, and they're important. And then the fives are people who are in staunch opposition. I know Andrew Bolt is never going to like me. Oh. I know that there are there are certain people you know that that will just never have their hearts or minds change, and really to hell with them because they're they're just an impediment. It's the twos, threes and fours that really are your audience, that movable middle. And some are curious, some want to know more, some are bored, sceptical, indifferent. It's that cohort that's worth speaking to again and again and engaging and then bringing them on as allies and converting them into the
0: uh, the ones which are the hard agrees. Very interesting. Antoinette, thank you so much for your time today. Um, wonderful conversation and let's keep talking, right? Absolutely. And, you know, there are so many more practical tips and pointers in my book. Each chapter
2: ends with do's and don'ts because I just think people need really practical and pragmatic steps on what to do next. We know it's bad. We know it's damaging and people just want some tools. Mm, They do. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook
1: or visit betterreading.com.au.